Amen. First Peter chapter 5 tonight, would you please? First Peter chapter 5. I love anything that's going to exalt uh, the Lord Jesus in song and our God and God alone. And uh, he is the one to be exalted. And so I appreciate that message and song. So good to see you here. I've met just a few more of you uh, tonight, just a few. And uh, I'm trying to get out and make sure I get a chance to get a name and a face and connect it together and, and not call you by the wrong name uh, next time I see you. So uh, be, bear, bear pa- be patient with me if I happen to call you by the wrong name. I really will try uh, to do it, uh, do, do, do you right by naming you by the right name. It would be a real help if you do two things for me. Number one, attend all the services. That, that, that way I can make sure I can remember you. And number two, if you could wear the same clothes every single, <laughs> maybe not. All right, maybe that should not happen. But uh, if you would, just plan to be back. I don't know if you heard or not, but we're going to do this again tomorrow night. All right, we're going to gather together again tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. So I hope that you'll plan to be here with us, really. You say, Morris, I've got, I got something big going on. I, you know, that may be true. You know, there's sometimes things that are what we often call providential hindrances. You know, like a, I don't know, um, a, a, an appointment with a doctor or a surgery that's taking you to a hospital. Or maybe there's a family concern that is of serious nature that you you really have to be there for them and that's understandable those are providential hindrances but if it's just you want to rearrange the socks in your sock drawer you know I think that can be well take 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 30 seconds and do that and then just come on over to the service all right hope that you'll plan to come and if you if you need now with time change let's see it'll be lighter Longer, isn't that right? Yeah, we're at that time of the year where it'd be lighter, longer, and uh, and so if you ha- if you struggle to drive at night, hope that you can uh, allow that not to be a hindrance. You make sure that you're back. All right, enough of that. I'm not going to just stand up here and promote, but I really do want you to uh, plan to be here. I want to be a help. God knows my heart. I want to be a, a a shot in the arm to Thompson Road Baptist Church. More importantly, to you individually. Uh, my burden is the local church. My concern is that God's people be refreshed. I said this this morning, I say it again. Revitalized, re-strengthened. Who knows how much time we have left on earth. And I want us to maximize our time. And so I hope that you'll plan to be here with us. And uh, I look forward to seeing you. And again, getting the name and the face and putting together. Now, you may have to come straight from work. And that's okay. You come straight from work. You say, well, I'll be in my uniform from work. I know the feeling. I'll be in my uniform too. So you just, you just come right on, all right? And we'll look forward. In fact, I love it when sometimes somebody comes from work and they wear a, a, a sweater or a, a shirt that has their name embossed. That really helps me to remember everybody's name. If you could just all hand out shirts to everybody with your name, that would be great. Great help. All right, enough time. Have you found 1 Peter 5? If you're in the middle of Zechariah, just sit right there and act like you know what you're doing, all right? Enough of that, that joke. The joke, the humor doesn't get any better, okay, folks? It is what it is, and, uh, and I can't help it. If, if you are here for the first time, I don't know that there is anybody here for the first time, but if you're here for the first time, I'm a guest like you. And so uh, I hope that you'll come back and get to know the pastor and uh, both, both pastors and get to know uh, the church family as a whole and, uh, and become acquainted with the ministry here. And so I hope that you'll plan to do so. Invite some friend to be with you tomorrow night. That'd be great to have somebody here with you uh, tomorrow night. That would be super and uh, that would be great. When Peter wrote this first epistle and actually both epistles written real close chronologically in time, he was writing to people who were going through a great deal of hurt, suffering, persecution. The ruler in the Roman Empire at the time of Peter's writing was a guy, you've heard of him, Nero. And Nero was... He was not a friend to God's people. In many cases, he wasn't a friend to the people of Rome. He was was crazy. 
He had such an uh, infatuation and love for building and construction. He loved to build buildings. But not only that, he loved the theater. He loved acting and plays. He actually wrote some plays and put those writings in the hands of directors and people who would orchestrate matters in putting together a play. Many times he himself, can you imagine, the Caesar would be in the play himself. He was nutty. He played the fiddle. And I suppose that many of us know the story of him playing his violin while Rome burned. Who caused Rome to be burnt? Nero. He ran out of space to build buildings. And he had this dream and this, uh, he had it mapped out of a, a huge uh, structure that would be called the Circus Maximus. And it was a circus with his control. To build a massive structure with, with a place for, again, acting and theater to be built. But he had to burn a bunch of Rome in order to make it happen. Buildings were built. People lost their lives. People lost their wealth, their belongings. And the people of the citizens of Rome rose up in anger toward their government. Now, aren't you glad that those kind of things have changed through the generations? Our, we, getting along with our government is just a natural thing for most of us. And they got angry. And Nero, recognizing that he was being blamed for the burning of Rome, didn't want to take the blame for it. Now, once again, aren't we glad that people in authority and government, they're willing to take the blame for whatever it is that they have caused. It's always been the same. And so in order to deflect his responsibility of it, he had to find somebody else to blame for the burning of Rome. And he found that group called Christians, followers of that, that Christ fella. And he said, they're the ones responsible. Let's persecute them. They're the ones who are fighting the government of Rome. And persecution came. Now, folks, we know very little of the persecution that God's people knew in that day. But you mark it down. We're getting there. And there are places across the globe tonight where God's people are suffering with heavy persecution. persecution. There are persecuted believers across the globe tonight. And so they begin to take God's people and threw them into arenas where wild animals attacked them. Hungry animals would attack our brethren. And sadly enough, Roman citizens would sit up in the stadium and would watch human beings devoured, sliced and diced by angry animals. And all kinds of treatment took place. To those people, and by the way, I could go on, but for sake of time, I'm going to quit on that. For those people, Peter writes these letters. It's in these letters where he says to them, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. Then he says, but rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Peter knew suffering himself. He would eventually be crucified, most historians believe, upside down for saying that he didn't deserve to be crucified like his Savior. He knew what it was to be lied about and imprisoned and mistreated and beaten. And he writes these letters. And we come to what you and I call chapter 5 in this first epistle. The opening words of chapter 5 are addressed to the pastors, the elders, he calls them, the church leaders. And he tells them to keep feeding their people. Now you see, these churches had to meet underground. They had to meet in secret places. And so he encourages the pastors, don't get, don't get distraught. Don't stop feeding your people with the Word of God. Keep teaching and preaching it. And he says, and lead them. Don't lord over them like you're some kind of a dictator and a boss. But he says, be a shepherd 
in their life. Then he says, pick it up with me in verse 5. Likewise, ye younger. He's talking about young in age as well as young in in the walk with the Lord. He says, submit yourselves unto the elder. He's talking about people who are along the road spiritually. He says, submit yourselves unto the elder, the leaders. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. In other words, learn from each other in your Christian journey and be clothed with humility. Now, that's a, that's a statement that one size fits all. He says, put on the clothing of humility. And nothing will kill a, a sweet church as much as pride and a good marriage as much as pride. Be clothed with humility. And in case you haven't gotten it yet, he, he quotes scripture. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. That's from the Proverbs. Now, once again, in case we hadn't gotten it, he says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, you see, here are people who've been hurting. There are people who have been scared. They're fearful for their lives, their families' lives. And they don't understand, why is this happening? And he says, just put yourself under the mighty hand of God. God knows what he's doing, and he will, the words exalt. Don't get the idea that he was saying, someday you will be super Christian. You will be exalted. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you, you feel like you're down now and you, t- you don't think you can face another day of trials and troubles. He says, no, just allow God to do what he's doing. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. He'll lift you up. Now, verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom? Resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. I love this next verse. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered, here's here's good words, a while. Make you perfect. Establish. Strengthen. Settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I was preaching at a Christian camp out in the state of California several years ago. And at that time, uh, we were calling Indianapolis our home. And uh, my wife happened to be home to work on a couple of home projects. She was going to paint some rooms and and uh, put some. She was going to make some uh, curtains or draperies in, in in some of the rooms and so forth. And uh, she doesn't often go with me when I preach at teen camps in the summer because there's no rhyme or reason. I'm just going all over the country and I'm catching a plane to go here and go there and so forth. And I was studying for the morning chapel when my phone rang. It was Lynn. I said, hey, baby, how, how are you, baby girl? And she said, I'm, I've got a problem. I said, what is it? She said, something's wrong with my car. She said, it's making all kinds of racket, just terrible noise. She said, I was backing out of the driveway to go pick up some paint. And she said, it's scratching and squawking and squealing and making all kinds of noise. And she said, I just pulled right back up here in the garage and called you. What can I do? Now, men, you understand as a husband... Number one, you want to help. Number two, the frustration of being about 2,000 miles away. I couldn't say, oh, I'll be right there, you know. There was nothing I could do. I said, and I'm not a mechanic, but I said, tell me, what does it sound like? And she described it for me. I said, no, is that coming from underneath the hood or out around by the wheels? And she said, yeah, I think it's out behind by the wheels. I said, I think that's your brake pads. I said, it sounds like you need new brake pads. I said, okay. I said, I know it sounds terrible, but you should be fine. Just drive it up the road to a certain spot and uh, you know, go to one of those auto repair places and get them to replace the brake pads. She said, Morris, I, I'm scared to get out in the car. She said, what if I break down? You're not here. And I said, yeah, that's right. I don't want you to break down. That's terrible. She said, what can I do? 
I said, um, I, I don't know. And uh, she said, well, I need to know because I got running around to do. I said, yeah, I, I know. And, uh, and I, again, I'm thinking, who can I call? I don't even, I'm never home enough to even meet a mechanic, much less uh, know somebody that could go by there and work on it. So I don't know what to tell her. And I finally, I said, uh, I said let, me, let me just think about this. Let's hang up for a moment. And I said, I'll call you right back. So I hung up. Our two boys were also here in Indy, and uh, one's a local youth pastor at a church, and the other one was a businessman here in a local business. And I thought, now, uh, they're both busy at work, and they're about as mechanically inclined as their dad, which means they're of no help whatsoever when it comes to repairing a car. And I thought, well, what can I do? I don't know. And they don't ever answer the phone when I call them, and so I don't know what to do. And uh, finally, I, I just, on a whim, I decided to call my one son who was in business working at a local industry or a, uh, engineering place. And uh, I called him, and lo and behold, he answered the phone. I said, hey, kid. I said, look. And I explained to him the situation. I said, your mom's got this problem with the car. And I said, I don't even know why I'm calling you except to say, do you know somebody I can call and somebody I can get to go to the house and maybe work on it? I mean, I don't know what to do. He said, Dad, I've got it. It's okay. I said, what do you mean you've got it? He said, Dad, I'll take care of Mom. I'll, I'll fix it. I'll, I'll take care of it. I said, son, you're at work. And I said, Mom needs the car now. I said, she needs to run around and run errands now. And I said, I, said, the, I, I, can't, I can't put it off till you get off work. He said, no, Dad. He said, I'm going on break in the next few minutes. And he said, I'll drive my car over to mom. She can take my car and keep it all day. I'll drive her car back up here to the shop. He said, at lunch, he says, I've got three mechanics who work with us here at the, at the shop here. He said, we'll take the wheels off. We'll take a look at the brake pads. And he says, I'll run up to the store and the auto parts. I'll buy the, I'll buy the brake pads. I said, hold it right there. I said, you are going to buy the brake pads? He said, yeah. I said, who is this? And what did you do with my son? I mean, never heard you buy things. Well, I said, oh, I said, oh, okay. He said, dad, we'll get it all repaired. And he said, mom, and he goes, and then I'll take her car back to her at the end of the day. And he says, and I'll get my car back. And he said, it'll be fine. Now, I'm telling you, in a matter of moments, it was all solved. And I said to him, because again, the male in me, the husband in me, 2,000 miles away, I wanted, to, I wanted to be a part of the solution. And, and I, was, I said, okay, okay, you got to buy parts and, and you got to uh, bring another man into the equation. I said, uh, uh, wh what can I do to help? He said, Dad, are you serious? I said, yeah, I mean, what can I do to help? I'll never forget his classic answer. He said, hang up the phone. That's what you can do. He said, what can you do, Dad? I said, well, I, I don't know, but I feel like I'm supposed to. He said, Dad, go do what you do. Go preach to teenagers. He said, I'll take care of Mom. You called me. I'll take care of her. Live your life out there at camp. With that in mind, would you recognize what Peter was trying to say to God's people? with a verse that you know so well, you could quote it right now without even an effort. You've heard it so many times. It's one of those verses that the verse just flows off of your lips. Look at verse 7 again. And think about hearing this for the first time in your life. Casting all your care upon Him. For He careth for you. God's people heard that from the Apostle Peter. And I'm reading between the print on the white paper, thinking some of those folks may have looked around and said, did you hear what Brother Peter just said? Does he know what we're going through? Yeah. He said, all your care. Peter's reminding us of something. The truth is tonight, boys and girls... Your key word tonight is the word care. The truth is, we all know what care is. We all go through cares, plural. In fact, the word care here in verse 7 is in the plural. 
He uses the word all before it to tell us every single one of them. And may I say to you, he's speaking singularly to each individual. Did you catch that? The distinctives in the language is this, casting all your cares, plural, <coughs> your care, my care, their care, those people who care, the one behind you, before you, their cares, cast all those many multitude, multifaceted cares because, here we go, singularly, he cares for you. You can put your name in the margin, and if you want to, you don't have to, but this is written to you. This is written to God's people individually. The truth is, the word care is a word that every single one of us understand. You know what Peter was saying to people who were troubled? He was saying, you need to live, ready, worry-free. Don't live with worry. You may be sitting here tonight thinking, oh, no. Oh, no, Morris, are you... Are you going to preach about worrying? Don't worry about it. The fact is, many times we are prone to worry. Some people are, are the, the, the in-house. Anxiousness. Fears. Fretfulness. And the world doesn't help us much. When was the last time you turned on the news and they said, hey, we got great news for you? No. Here's what you hear. Breaking news. Somebody sneezed in the Middle East. Gas prices just went up another five cents a gallon. Bad news. It's coming. You know, when you were a little child, you used to look up at adults and you'd say, I can't wait till I grow up. I'm just going to. I'm going to do what I want to do when I grow up. I want to eat ice cream at midnight if I want to. Then you grow up and you say, I can't eat ice cream at midnight, man. I'll, I'll be up all night long. I can't do that. Little kids go, I can't wait till I grow up. I'm going to stay up till midnight. I'm going to stay up all night long. And when you grow up, you, about 9.15, you start heading to the bed. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, things change. You start looking at kids saying, boy, that was the life, wasn't it? Boy, when I was a child, you see them running around the church. You say, life was so much easier. And it seems like no matter what age or stage of life, you can always find somebody else that has it much better than you. Why? Because your focus is on your cares. TV commercials are, are opportunities for advertisers to tell you that you need their product and the product that you have is insufficient. Wouldn't it be great for a telephone company, a telephone, that ages me, a phone company to, to come out and say to you, uh, this is the newest uh, rendition of the, you know, you've got that 5G phone. Well, this is 17G. I mean, this one right here will do everything. Your phone is a piece of trash. This is the phone of the future. It will vacuum the carpet. It will brush your teeth. It'll drive your car. It will wash your car. It will occasionally make phone calls. It is the phone that you need. And you look at your $850 phone and you go, man. What a piece of junk I have. I need that. We spend our whole life thinking, I don't have what I need. Your toothpaste isn't sufficient. Your hairspray isn't sufficient. Your car isn't sufficient. Your phone isn't. And we go through life thinking, I don't have the things that bring the kind of joy that I really want. And the truth is, we spend our whole life filled with restlessness and panic, anxiousness. It is an incredible thing to me how much fear now hear me, I'm not rebuking you. But anxiousness that is among God's people. When I preach to young and older ones alike, regardless of their age, there are troubles and cares and fears. They may be financial, they may be emotional. They may be relational. They may be physical. It may be something you can't even wrap your hand around and, and, and tell people what it is. It's just something causes you to lose sleep. And you've lost the peace that the Lord Jesus said to his disciples before leaving. Peace, I leave with you. 
My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so five years ago, I sat in a doctor's office after x-rays and two MRIs and a painful bone marrow biopsy. And I heard what Pastor Slutes has heard, that I had multiple myeloma. And my world came to a screeching halt. I didn't even know what it was. I actually asked the doctor, is that cancer? I've never heard of it. He said, it is. It's in your bone marrow, the blood plasma. And I said, doctor, how long is this going to take to, de- to deal with it? I, 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 I travel, I preach, it's my life. I don't have any side job. It's what I do. I've got to have the strength, the energy to go preach. I said, doctor, how long is this going to take? He said, it's going to take several months. And after radiation to get rid of things that were tumor and low in low dosage of chemo and then a stem cell bone marrow transplant after an entire year, I heard that wonderful word remission. You're in remission. When I got that bone marrow transplant, the nurses came in and they sang with a birthday cake. They said, it's your second birthday. I said, actually, it's my third, but okay, whatever. And they sang, they said, you've got a whole brand new immune system. I had to go get all my immunization shots, just like a little child all over again. And I asked them, I said, I don't have to do eighth grade all over again, do I? I said, I don't. I mean, that was a rough one. My world stopped, and for an entire year, I didn't preach anywhere. I didn't have the strength hardly to lift my head in front of a computer to do much. You know what you do at a time like that? You say, why? God, I don't understand. I don't get this. Why did you, what did I do? Maybe I didn't do anything. I don't know. What, what can we do? Lord, what, Lord are you, is my time on earth finished? And there were several passages and several verses. I say several. There were a handful of verses. Are you listening? That became anchors in a time of real fear. And 1 Peter 5, 7 was one of those main anchors. What can we learn from this verse? First of all, you see the inevitable reality. What's that? (laughs) You're going to have cares. Notice that Peter says there, if you look at it, casting all your care upon him. Peter didn't say, I'd like to have the attention of a few of you there that are going to have this church, have this letter written, read to you in your underground church. Some of you are going to have cares. Others of you, just be patient with me while I express this to those who, no, that's not what he said at all. He said, it is inevitable. You're all going to have cares. You're going to have hardships. It is an inevitable, unalterable, unchangeable, irrevocable, unavoidable reality. You're going to have cares. They had suffered hurts. They had suffered being scared. They had been scarred. They had been lonely. Does any of this sound familiar? They had experienced worry. They experienced depression. They had been lied about. And maybe you have as well. Maybe your storms include any of those words and maybe even much more. And let me say something to you that you know like the back of your hand. It is the truth. Trials sent from your heavenly father are not punishments. They're tools. They're his tools to carve things out of your life and to increase more Christ-likeness in your life. You ask somebody at church, how you doing? And what do we say? Fine. Doing well? Good. 
We often lie when we come to church. The fact is, I'm not trying to stir something up tonight. I'm trying to get you to be honest with yourself. You know it's true. There are unalterable cares that hit you. And some of you are more troubled than you care to uh, uh, express to others. And God bless you for not sharing it too much and to make much about the pains that you're going through. You don't want to live by your emotions. You know, emotions are a gift from God. Emotions are a blessing, really. They help us to enjoy life. We use our, our emotions help us in conversations. And we, we listen and we show empathy and, and we laugh at something that somebody says. And, oh, we get serious when somebody's serious. And there's a great deal of emotion. And emotions are a gift from God that bring color to life. But emotions are to ride in the back seat of your life. They're not supposed to be in the driver's seat of your life. Emotions are not supposed to be driving your life. Because if you do, you're going to be up and then back down. Up and back down. And everything's going to be based upon the events and the extras, uh, the externals of your life. Because if you allow your emotions to be in charge, and you know this is true, it's going to affect your marriage. It's going to affect your relationship at home. It's going to affect your ministry at church or your, your mentoring of your kids. You allow your emotions to drive the train, to drive the car. You're going to, you're going to take it out on somebody else. You're going to start being questionable about, I wish they wouldn't do that down there at that church. I don't, I don't appreciate what they're doing. I don't like that. I just don't, I just, you know, this is the worst week in the world to have revival. Yeah, well, it's probably any week of our life we can get like that. Here's the truth. You can get so, so much so that uh, when your husband says something, ladies, you, you'll just misread him, misjudge him, and all of a sudden fire back something. Why? Because emotions are driving your life. Sir, you, you allow something that happens at work or behind the wheel of your own life just driving around. Somebody irritates you, and you take it out on your wife or your kids. Emotions are to be sitting in the back seat. They're not supposed to be in charge. And Peter is saying, it's inevitable. You're going to have cares. Now, I'm pretty simple here, but let me just talk about where cares come from. They come from other people many times. They come from problems. They come from your own personality, your own natural bent toward depression or, or uh, always seeing the negative of things. But let me break it down even further. I think in many cases, our cares come from many times our past. Something happened to us in our past. Somebody said something that you didn't appreciate. Somebody mistreated you. Somebody mistreated somebody in your family. Um, a teacher, a coach, a parent. Maybe there was abuse in your past. And there's something that happened in your past. And, and you look at your life and you say, Oh man, if only I hadn't joined the military. Oh, if only I hadn't gone to that school. If only I hadn't taken that first drink. If only I had not hung out with that crowd of so-called friends. If only, if only I, I hadn't taken that job. If only, if only. And the whole rest of your life, you just drag the past along. Do you remember what we looked at this morning in Philippians? Where Paul said, brethren, forgetting those things which are behind. And pressing on toward the future. What God wants to do with my life. Now look, as you drive home tonight, if all you do is watch the rearview mirror, you're going to have a rest. It's okay to glance up there to, to be reflective of where you were. And there are lessons to be learned from the past. But you, don't, you look at that big windshield at the future of where you're headed. It, the past can make you <sighs> full of care. If it's not the past, it's the present. You start thinking, I just don't think I can get everything done that needs to be done today. I tend to be one of those kind of people that's a type A person. I make myself a list of everything I want to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and I start frantically trying to scratch things off and get things accomplished and so forth. And if I don't get it all done, yeah, you know, <clears throat> you may be one of those kind of people. You just constantly, uh, you're saying, I just don't have enough time in every day to get everything done that I want to do. And the present cares of today really irritate you. And they really concern you. You know, uh, many times you've, you've heard this about a lady by the name of Martha. In Luke chapter 10, she was preparing a meal. The Bible says she was cumbered 
about with much serving, so much, so many people to serve a meal to. Oh, the present cares. And Jesus said, Martha, 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 chill. That's hidden in the Greek language, but I think it was there. Catch your breath, Martha. Then he said this, you are, the old English word is the word careful. It means you are full of care about many things. He said, but your sister Mary hath, has chosen the better place to be, sitting here, thinking on me and listening to my words. He wasn't saying work is unimportant. He was simply saying, quit letting the present concerns. Oh, I don't think I can pay all these bills. Oh, I just don't think we can get all these projects accomplished. What are we going to do? And you let the day-to-day -day struggles lead you to a bunch of care. If it's not the past and it's not the present, you got to figure it out where we're going. It is. Now you got to think like a preacher, all right? You got to get an outline going. You want to say the future, and you're right, but you got to get a you got to get the alliteration going. I don't know why we do this. If it's not the past and if it's not the present, it is the possibilities of the future, all right? I don't know why we do that, but we do. And it's the concern about what are we going to do about the future? Oh, no. What, what if, what if the, the retirement fund runs low? Oh, what if, what if, uh, what if my kid doesn't pass geometry <laughs> again? Uh, what, what, if, uh, what if the car doesn't start? That guy gets elected. He probably already has. Uh, what, uh, uh, what if the law is passed? What if the dog runs away? <laughs> what if? Cat lovers, please come tomorrow night, would you please? I'm just joking. We do. We get fearful about tomorrow. We allow all the concerns about where is this world going? I told you this morning. Read the last chapters. We come out on top. But the point is, friend, you can allow all the day-to-day -day cares and the concerns about tomorrow to weight you down and cause you to be full of care. I, I've ridden on planes oh, so many times I've lost count. It happened yesterday. The pilot comes on. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the seatbelt sign on a little longer. Please tighten your belt. I'm going to ask the flight attendants to have a seat because we're about to have some turbulence. You know, I always want to ring that little assistant bell and ask them to come talk to me. I want to say, could you ask the pilot a question for me? What's that, sir? If he knows we're about to hit some turbulence, can he fly around it or something? I mean, can, can he avoid it? You know, I don't care if I don't get where I need to get to till about three more days from now, but just avoid that. You know, who enjoys in a plane? Worst thing in the world is be eating a pretzel and you start dropping down. I don't know when, friend, but turbulence is coming. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, God's people have either just come out of a storm are they in the midst of a storm? Are they about to get into one? And you've lived long enough to know it's true. The next phone call, the next doctor's report for you. The next day, the, before you put your head on a pillow tonight, there's maybe something that's going to come along. And the fact is, we, you mentioned big things like cancer, and it's like, oh, I don't want to hear that. It's sometimes it's the so-called little things that just constantly eat away at you. Cares and burdens. Peter said, cast them all. The inevitable reality, you're going to have cares quickly, number two. The immediate response. What am I supposed to do when I have cares? Well, let's let the Bible explain it. Look at verse 7. Casting all your care upon Him. Casting upon Him. I called my son. I said, son, I don't know what to do. Dad, just go on and do your preaching at that camp. I've got it. You gave it to me. I got it. 
You cast it on me. Now you go on. You know, what the, you, know what, you know what the Bible, I'm just a delivery boy here. I do get animated because I have found great security in this truth. I'm telling you tonight, what God's word is trying to tell all of his people is this. You don't need to be filled with worry. You don't need to be filled with anxiety. You don't need to be filled with depression. You don't need to be filled with fear. Why? Because you don't have to hang on to it. Cast it on him. A little word study. The word casting is a word that means to be thrown with force. It's the idea of throwing something with great energy. Hey, listen to this. It also means to throw something hurriedly. In other words, it's like this. When a care comes in your life, Lord, I don't want this. Lord, you brought it into my life. What lessons I need to learn, I'll learn from the Lord. Here, you take it. I, I don't need it. Folks, in simple terms, we're talking about prayer. Cast it back on him. Did you know that I'm convinced that many times the cares of our life come in order to increase the intimacy of your prayer life with God? I don't want to ever get cancer again. I have the kind of cancer that may come back. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm grateful for the things I've learned in that full year of nothing more but dealing with doctor's report, doctor's appointments and everything else for the journey of prayer that I went through for that entire year. Could it be tonight that God may send you on a journey that would allow you to know what it is to just Know what it is to talk to him about your cares. Casting on him. And I'm not talking about yo-yo prayers. You know what I mean by that? You ever play with a yo-yo where you, you toss it down and you flick your wrist and it, it comes rolling back up and you throw it down and flick it and it comes right back up? Sometimes we pray like this. Oh God, take! I'm leaving my burden with you. I'm casting it down. Oh God, here in the altar of my heart, I cast it upon you. Lord, I can't carry this. Uh, this relationship problem is so heavy. Lord, this financial load is too much. Lord, this, uh, this, uh, all these issues I've got to deal with. Lord, it's just too much. I can't handle it. And I'm going to cast it at your feet. Thank you, Lord. I gave it to you. And you just pick it right back up like a yo-yo and you carry it with you. No, no. That's not what Peter's talking about. You give it to him. The word casting is like the word casting that was expressed when people cast palm branches and their clothing and upon the donkey that Jesus rode when he, on that beginning of Palm Sunday, if we call it. As he came in, they cast those garments down. Why? So they could worship him. And I believe that sometimes our worship suffers because we're still carrying the load of cares. You want to sing better? You want to give more? You want to be a person who loves life more fully? You want to be someone who serves God with more energy? Learn how to take your cares and say, this doesn't belong to me. I want to give it to you. Our mind gets so preoccupied with sorrow that we don't even see our king. We, we glance, we glare at our problems we kind of glance at Jesus. Friends, glance at your problems and gaze upon him. Take him to him. Have you ever noticed that the, some of the strongest believers in the word of God were those, those people who had strong devotion to Christ, suffered the heaviest of burdens? Joseph Hated by his brethren, sold off into slavery, thrown into a prison. Job, Bible calls him the strongest believer, strongest Christian. And like a giant tree in the midst of a forest of trees, he stood head and shoulders above all other followers of God. It was like the lightning came straight at him as a straightforward tree. Some of the strongest believers in the scriptures are those who suffer the greatest struggles and trials. Why? So they could help you and me to hear their life and to be reminded you and I, listen, you don't live looking at your circumstances. You live on the certainties of God's truth. Don't get bitter at God. 
Don't say to him, I've been faithful to you. Why are you letting this happen? Why is this going on? You start living that way, friends, you'll be a miserable puppy the rest of your life. Friends, if you start living that way, here's what happens. When everything is going smooth in your life, you think, God must be really pleased with me. Everything's good. Bills are paid. Life is smooth. Health is good. God must really be pleased. You better be careful with this retribution theology you're living off of because when things collapse around you, all of a sudden you start thinking, oh, what did I do to upset you? He's improving you. Your sins were carried to the cross and were paid for. Now, if you get out of fellowship with God, that's one thing. The Lord does bring suffering to bring correction. I'm talking about his perfecting work. In your life. I'm talking about God's people who go through trials, and it's not because you, you, you need to be corrected. There's some sin that's unconfessed. Everything's right as far as you know between you and the Lord, and then you start suffering one thing or another. What's He doing? He's improving us. Don't get bitter. Stay faithful. Faithful to Him, faithful in prayer, faithful to walking with Him, faithful in serving Him. I've discovered that as you try to help carry the load off of somebody else, all of a sudden your burden seems to be a little lighter because you're investing yourself in the, the, the improvement of somebody else's walk with the Lord. Are you going through something hard tonight? Are you going through a particular storm you can't explain tonight? Does it make sense to you? It doesn't have to make sense. Hear me. Our hope and our peace and our security is not based upon understanding why you're going through things. Our hope, our peace, our security is founded upon knowing He knows what He's doing. And I discovered that his sovereign oversight in my life is improving something in me that I can't even see him doing. But he's at work. I used to sit on the floor as a little boy and I'd play with my baseball cards. Oh man, what memories. And I'd, I'd organize them in teams and sometimes in positions and and, and the two uh, leagues, American and National, and I'd be playing with my baseball cards. And my mother would be sitting in uh, one of the chairs in the living room, and she'd be working with some kind of a, a, a cross stitch, I think is what it was called. And she'd have this piece of fabric stretched out on, and, and some kind of a ring of some sort, and she'd take a needle of thread, punch it through the top, and then come back up and back down and back up. I was down on the floor, and I'd look up, and all I saw was a bunch of ugly strings hanging down underneath that stretched piece of material. And being the loving son that I was, I said, that sure is ugly, Mom. And she'd say, you don't know what I'm doing. I said, I don't know what you're doing, but it sure is ugly. And she'd say, stand up, come over here. I'd go over there and I'd stand next to her and I'd look at it from her vantage point. Oh, look at that butterfly. Look at that mountain scene. Look at that little river flowing in the woods. Look, Mom, I couldn't see that. No, I was looking at it like this. Sometimes I look up at God and I say, I don't get it. I don't understand. And God says, you don't have to understand. I'm doing something. It's for your good and my glory. Let me work. Just cast your care back on me. The inevitable reality, you're going to have cares. The instant response, cast them back on him. And finally, the incredible reason. The incredible reason for what? For your cares? No. The incredible reason, well, to some degree, your cares. But the incredible reason to cast your cares on him is what? Peter said, for he careth for you. He cares. I'm not a Greek scholar either, but I can tell you some things about this statement. When it says he cares for you, it's written in the present tense. Ooh, you say, you're going to turn it into a, 
a grammar class. Come on, you know what present tense means. It means this. It's happening right now. Are you with me? His care for you is right now. It's in the active voice. What does that mean? It means it's real. His care for you is real. It is not hypothetical. It's not preacher hyperbole. It's not a guy standing up here just getting energized. No, it's real. As real as the the floor that your feet touch. And it's in the indicative mood, which means what? It will always be true. Let me put it in plain old Texas English. God loves and cares for you. He always has and he always will and he does right now. Right now. You say, but I don't feel like when I'm going through it, I don't feel like he cares. Then tell your feelings to take a hike because God's word is clear. The psalmist said in Psalm 42 and verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted? You could use the word depressed. Why are you depressed within me? Hope in God. Who shall yet be the health of my countenance. Do you hear him? The psalmist is talking to himself. I like what one preacher said. He stopped listening to himself and his emotions. And he started talking to himself. Why are you cast down? Morris, why are you cast down? And why are you so disturbed and depressed and disquieted within me come on hope in God who will in time yet be the health of my spiritual countenance you going through something tonight you say no I'm going everything seems to be fine good I'm glad I'm happy for you I really am just keep going to bed at night keep getting up the next day The next phone call may shake your world. The next drive into town may alter things that you never thought were possible. The next report of something at work may alter the direction for your future. It may be that things are going to happen that you're just not prepared for. And you know it's true. You know when you're going through something, it just helps to know somebody cares. You ever notice that? Somebody cares. They give you a phone call. Send you an email. Send you a text. They write you a letter for those who are old school. They keep in touch with you. They care. It just helps to know. Can I tell you, he always has cared. He's never stopped. You can go to the bank on it. The incredible reason to cast all your care upon him is because he cares for you. One night as a little child, I was at home with my mom, and my mom thought, and my sister was there, my mom thought that she heard somebody was breaking in the back door of our house. We'd never had anything like that happen before. It scared us to death. We went running through the front living room and out the, out the front door and across to the neighbors. My dad was gone on some kind of trip. He'd be coming home a little later that night. We called the police. Man, it scared me. I was like a five-year-old child. The police came to our house, walked through the house. He came back over across the street where we were standing, and he said to my mother, Mrs. Gleiser, it looks good. Everything, no, there's nobody in your house. He said the back door was unlocked, and I think he said it might have been ajar. But he said, uh, you're good. You can go home. And she said, I think we're going to wait for my husband. We'll stay here with the neighbors. And after a bit, Dad pulled in. We called him over and we told him what happened. I stood there in the backyard of my neighbor's house and I watched Dad walk back across the street. (laughs) I can still see it. I thought that's the bravest man in the world. He walked inside that house and he came back across the street. He says, all right, everything's good. Let's go home. I thought, go home? No, I don't know if we can go back to that house. Just go get my baseball glove and my, and my bicycle. That's all I need for the rest of my life, you know. I grabbed Dad by the pant leg and we walked across the street. I said, Daddy, did you check every room? Oh, yes, son, I did. Did you check all the closets? You know, closets are important to children. Did you check all the closets? I did, son. 
I said, did you check inside those vents? You know, it could have been a real skinny man down inside one of those vents, you know. He said, son, there's nobody in the house. I said, did you look underneath the bed? I did. We got inside the house and my daddy said, all right, let's all go to bed. And I thought, go to bed? Well, I go to bed tonight. We'll all sit up all night long and be prepared for anything. I'd never handled a gun. I'm just joking. But the truth is, I didn't think, I, I, I can't go to sleep. And I laid in bed. And my eyes were bugged out. Folks, I remember this. I remember thinking, I don't even want to blink. Because in the moment of a blink, somebody may come into my room in that little blink of a moment and be right on me. And in the quietness of the night, I heard somebody walking down the hall. And there standing at my door of my room was my daddy. And he was looking around the house, checking things out, trying to give comfort to a scared little five-year-old boy. He walked back down to his room, and I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour later, he came back down the hall and stood right by my room again, looked around, (coughs) checking things out. Boy, it was so good to see Daddy still up. He went back down the hall to their room. Another 45, 60 minutes, he came back down the hall. This third time, he was carrying a baseball bat, prepared for anything. I will admit, I had mixed emotions at that time. I thought, (laughs) I wish somebody would come in right now. Get them, Dad! And the next thing I knew, it was morning. If daddy's going to stay awake, I might as well sleep. And God says to you, I know you don't know how you're going to pay that bill. I know. Just give it here. I know that you need a new roof on that house. Just give it to me. I know you need shoes for your children. Give give it here. I know that you've got that project due, school, work. I'll get you through it. I know you need another 50 bucks to put some gas in the tank this week. I got it. God knows. He says, give it to me. I care. Rest. Cast all your care on him. For he cares for you. Father, I pray that you'll comfort your people tonight as only you can. May we recognize what it is you're trying to say to us. May we be people who have peace and rest with you. Would you all look back at me just one more time? Here's what I want to do. Normally we have everybody stand. Normally the preacher challenges people to pray and find a place to seek the Lord. And to say, God, I need your help. Lord, you spoke to me. And there's a place for that. But tonight, I'm going to do this. And I want you to understand what I want to do. I want you to stay seated. And I want you to pray right there where you are. You may or may not be going through a care right now. You may have somebody on your heart that's going through a storm. You can pray for them. But in most cases in this room, you're probably more distressed than you've admitted to others about. I don't know. I want you to pray for two things. I want you to stay seated, and I want you to pray for that care. Tell the Lord, I'm giving you my care. Lord, I'm just going to give it to you because you care for me. You say, preacher, I have talked to the Lord about it. All right, then just tell him again. You say, I've got more than one care. Good. Cast all your care upon it. Just name it to him. Say, Lord, take care of this burden, this loved one that's away from you, my son, my daughter who needs to come to you. Whatever the burden may be, (coughs) I want you to take time to pray for that care. Then number two, pray for you to have a personal revival, an awakening, not some kind of a spiritual zap upon your life, but an awakening that God refreshes in your life. You take time to pray for those two things. And then when you're finished, it shouldn't take long. When you're finished praying for those two things, just stand up. Just stand up. I'm going to go down here on the front row and pray for those things myself. And your pastor will come and conclude as he sees fit whenever he thinks enough 
Uh, people have moved to stand up. It shouldn't take long. Listen, if the person next to you prays longer than you, don't feel guilty. It's not a contest. You're through praying, just stand up. If the person next to you prays briefer than you and they stand up, don't feel rushed. You finish your prayer and then you stand up. And Pastor Stevens will conclude as he sees fit. All right? We'll have music played in the background. And may the Lord help us to take care of business. Name that care to the Lord or cares. Ask for God to do a work in your heart this week. Let's pray. Father, finish this service with your divine blessing. May we take all our anxieties and all our cares and lay them at your feet because you care for us. We ask it in your wonderful name. The time there is for you. Spend time with him right now as he begins to play.